Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, gold and commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Okay, happy Friday. Look, we lost Mike. Oh, there he is. Okay. Oh, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> He's just doing some behind-the-scenes work made here. It. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> just back from a fresh workout at the gym. So feeling that, yeah. feeling that gym energy and uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, enough yeah, about me, good. more about, more about our, 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 our guest, our infamous guest with the, the handle Bob E unlimited. I mean, if that's not a Wiley Coyote, moniker, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what is. So was, I expect yeah. we're going to get some, going to get some Acme gems dropped on us today. And uh, perfect. Well, thanks just, for having me. Yeah, in advance of that, just so we can have a far wide-ranging conversation that is not investment advice at all in any way, shape, or form and should not be taken as such, please remember it's a Friday afternoon on YouTube. So three guys on a YouTube channel is not the place to get your investment advice. Or or I don't know, maybe it is, but it, go check it with your advisor anyway. And with that, let's roll, Bobby Elliott. How's it going? Bobby Unlimited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually i'm pumped i missed last week's um last week's riffs and uh so this is kicking off the year for me last last week's was actually fantastic but um you know we're really cranking it up here so we've got bob elliott um ex bridgewater uh recently launched a hedge fund replication firm and uh and a new etf and um we're going to talk about all of that as well as the current macro picture which 
I'd say is pretty well as uh, ambiguous and, and complicated and uncertain as we have seen in quite a long while. So uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. I think it probably works for you to start us off with a bit of background about yourself, Bob. How did you get into this crazy business? Um, what did you do with the early part of your career? And, and what are you hoping to do now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, my, my background, I guess, 20 years as a systematic investor is what I uh, always like to say. Um, I, uh, the, the vast majority of that was at Bridgewater Associates, um, uh, where I was there for just a little under 15 years, uh, and, um, did a whole bunch of different things, uh, while I was there, uh, built systematic investment strategies, you know, across all the major asset classes, uh, many of which were used in the flagship pure alpha fund. I also, uh, ran Ray Dalio's, uh, investment research team for, a decade. Um, Ghost wrote a lot of what he has put out since uh, during that time and since and, and, you know, was part of the small handful of investors that sort of brought Bridgewater from being a bit of a niche player back in the early 2000s to being, you know, what it is today. Um, I, uh, you know, to being the incumbent, I, I, uh, I left in 2018. I, uh, spent some time uh, running a $125 million venture fund, which used big data to identify early uh, consumer opportunities, which is kind of like, you know, systematic in the venture space. And then, you know, over time sort of recognize that the two and 20 world in general is, you know, pretty good for the manager and not great for the investor. Um, and that's because even though, um, the managers are pretty good at generating alpha, they're also pretty good at charging fees. And that is, um, that leaves investors not much better off than they could do on their own. And so I sort of had this idea, this sort of inspiration that could we sort of create diversified low cost index funds in the two and 20 space, the same way there are, you know, Vanguard funds and equities and bonds and all that. Um, but recognize that it was going to be a little harder uh, to do that than traditional investing like that. And so um, have been working you know, for a while now, building a technology that allows us to look over the shoulder of managers, see what they're doing, infer what they're doing, and replicate it and put it in that investor-friendly form of the ETF, um, which is, you know, great, has all sorts of advantages, particularly for U.S.-based taxable investors. And, and so, you know, that's what we've done. We launched, HF, we launched HFND three months ago, um, which seeks to replicate the uh, gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry at that much more modest 95 basis point management fee versus two and 20. Uh, and uh, it's been the number one, uh, number one growing uh, independent actively managed ETF launch uh, in 2022. So 55 million bucks in it. It's been a ride for three months. Uh, and, uh, and, and also sort of getting, I mean, you guys, we've met over on Twitter. I bet some of the people who are on here know me from Twitter that, you know, our thought was, make the return streams available, also make macroeconomic understanding and research available. And that, you know, is what I spent a lot of my career doing. And it's been fun getting back to that. And Twitter is just such a great platform to do that stuff. You know, it's, it's really, it, anyway, it's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you've, you've definitely made a success of it and, and um, quite rightly so. I mean, you you're very active. You post a lot of incredible content, lots of really great analysis and context and charts um, to make your case. Um, and I've really enjoyed following the journey. Um, and congratulations on your the launch of your ETF and your early success. That's fantastic. And 
Thank you. I, actually, you I mean, as fellow nerds and, and quants and systematic managers, <laughs> I'm right. super keen to hear how, um, you know, dig into some of the details of, of uh, how you're executing your replication and your research journey and all that kind of stuff. But before we get there, I want to I talk a little bit about your time at Bridgewater. I understand that you spent some time, um, many years, I think, if I understand correctly, writing Bridgewater's daily observations. Is that right? Yes. 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 I, I was, uh, there, were, there were five or six authors that were regular authors on the daily observations. Uh, and I was one of them for uh, five or six years. So writing, you know, between one and two of those, there are two sections, a morning and an evening section, one or two of those sections a week, every week <laughs> for years, uh, which was, uh, which was, you know, a lot of fun. I think, you know, many of the things that, um, some of the things that, that, you know, when you think about Bridgewater as an institution, obviously it's become sort of the incumbent. I think many people fail, many people sort of look at the return stream and sort of say, oh, that's, that's a, you know, pretty good return stream like that, that, you know, makes sense why people might be interested in it. And I think they, they don't necessarily appreciate that what makes, what has made um, people, particularly institutional investors, you know, stick around for a long time through the good times and the bad is that thought leadership and that partnership of working with clients to understand what's going on in the macro economy and help them navigate, you know, in aggregate. Not, it's not just about the product, it's about the overall partnership and doing that through content. And the daily observations are just, I mean, they were sort of the premier way of doing that content and creating that relationship. It's incredible, you know, it was a ton of work. <laughs> no, we're you know, a binary layer and we've been long-term admirers of Bridgewater's marketing strategy through that daily observations and, and recognizing very directly how it builds trust and long-term relationships with clients to support whatever's going on in the background on the investment right. side. So I was kind of wondering though, like to what extent, I mean, I understand Bridgewater um, is for all intents and purposes, hundred percent systematic, maybe not systematic in the way that many people think about systematic. It's more sort of macro systematic the way I understood it anyways, but the, to what degree do what's going on in the thinking in daily observations either overlap or inform or synergize with what went on in the back end on the investment side in terms of the types of uh, data that you were feeding into the machine, the types of relationships that you were, um, you know, that act as Bayesian priors on whatever the forecasting engine is. How did that synergize with, between research and, and that marketing activity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing that, um, you know, when we say it, systematic, I think um, often people think about it like traditional quant and I wouldn't quite describe it's not, it was not, um, it, it is not a traditional quanti type process. It's more systematic in the sense of like using data and logic and decision rules <laughs> to determine what positions should be across markets and then building portfolio, you know, views and portfolios and things like that. And so that's really kind of what it is. And I think the process, the process of developing a systematic approach to managing money is um, in a lot of ways, you, what you do is you use systemization to help create leverage. So instead of coming in every day and saying, 
well, the yen's, you know, PPP is this and the interest rate differential is this. And, the, the you know, instead of having to, like, recalculate that in your mind every day, which is stupid because, like, computers are pretty good at that. Um, and, and what you could do is you could just take that data in, process it based upon your, you know, by and large, your existing understanding and, and start with something that is a pretty good representation of how you would think about what's going on in the world. And then I think the main thing that uh, that and that creates there's all sorts of reasons why you want to do that because it creates discipline and it removes the emotion and you're not getting hung up on the news of the day and all those things all those things that are pra- frankly like intellectual um, they're they're problems of human nature that can be that need to be resolved through discipline and systemization is an effective discipline right that's yep. its most most of it is leveraging and disciplined and those are the two most effective things that it does. But necessarily, there's always things, the world is evolving, your understanding is evolving, your thinking is evolving. So there's always things that are incremental that could get better in that understanding over time. And that's really what that process is, which is you see what's going on in the world, you see how you, how you think things are playing out, then you see how they are playing out, and then you're constantly going back and forth and observing things you may have missed, you may not have understood, you know, things like that. And that generates questions and from questions become, you know, ideas of what are the other decision rules that should be used and from other decision rules that being used, presuming, you know, they're good, which to be clear, the vast majority of people's intuitions are bad. They're not good. Just, just so that people have that understanding, particularly if you rigorously assess it, it is bad. Like 80% is bad. Like if you have a 200 or 300 hit rate on incremental ideas of how to trade markets that are good. Like you're a world-class investor just to have that in your mind. And so that's what that process is. And the, and the observations and the writing of the stuff in a lot of ways is just talk about the discipline of trading. It's also the discipline of wrestling with whether the views make sense or not. That's what the writing is, right? Is that discipline of saying, I am actually going to sit here and I'm going to look at that stat and I'm going to look at what I think is going on and I'm going to compare those two things. I'm going to say in line with what I think, out of line with what I think, incremental insight or understanding about it. And that's a lot of what you see me do on Twitter. Like in some ways it's like a little boring, which is like, you know, University of Michigan confidence survey comes out. I think it should look like transitory Goldilocks. Okay, what does it say? Well, it ticked up. In the essentially the growth part of it ticked up and the, the inflation part of it ticked down. Okay, check, consistent with my understanding, put it aside, move on. Right. That that's what the process really is all about. Um, I suppose there's also there's also a, a huge benefit in the consistency of the dashboard, if you will. You've got a dashboard of instruments that you're uh, attuned to and paying attention to. And I, I would imagine there's a there's a small migration of maybe new things or incremental understandings. It's that's coming and going from that larger dashboard of inputs with which you're trying to sort of uh, screen the world through. Right. And then you've got this consistency, though, of the bulk of those types of uh, pieces of information coming at you that your your dashboard's fairly consistent through time. And so, you know, the, your insights probably, you know, grow, your intuitions grow because you've got this consistency of that dashboard of, of indicators, if you will. Yeah, and I think one of the things that that people so often fail to appreciate is how much easier it is to start with a high quality foundation, a high quality levered foundation. And so that that dashboard, like, you know, 
as an example, there was like a book that got printed every week that had a thousand pages in it, right? Like, and it just basically had all the charts of everything that you'd want to see going on in the world. And it was the same, you know, every week being able to come back and look at that and say, this is our, you know, this is the holistic understanding I have. What isn't working consistent with my holistic understanding? What is working with my consistent with my holistic understanding? And what it does, I mean, systemization, it is like freeing because it frees the mind from having to like rebuild the understanding over and over again. Like that's mm -hmm. the thing, the discipline and the leverage are the things that are so valuable about, valuable about systemization. And those far outweigh the fact that it's going to be imperfect, right? So often people get kind of confused, like, well, you, the, a systematic approach is an imperfect approach. It's like, well, like damn straight, it's an imperfect approach, but it's a whole heck of a lot better than an approach where you're trying to like mentally reprocess everything with all of your emotions every single day, right? Like that is a way worse approach and a much more taxing approach than a systematic one. Now I view that I view the dashboard as being something more than a dashboard and providing more like, um, you know, PPP for the, for the yen is, is this, um, in, expected inflation in Japan is this, um, economic growth is, is this, the Nikkei has done this over the last three, six months, whatever, like a, a, a basket of kind of um, reasonable sort of intermediately moving or, or evolving indicators. And then a system of, that provides kind of an outside view of, you know, here's the conditional probability of certain outcomes Right. Um, given a you know some number of combination of these different meaningful indicators that you know you've got some uh, some sort of theoretical rationale for why these indicators should be explanatory of the economic machine and how markets should evolve in response to the economic machine, right? So it's not just like a bunch of dials and dashboards. Am I right that there's also along with those dashboards? a variety of sort of conditional inferences that represent kind of Bayesian priors on, look, if you want to be short the yen here, if this constellation of uh, indicators typically is suggestive that we should, that the probability is that the yen is going to appreciate over the next six months. So that should skew your or, or temper your enthusiasm to go against that or, or to, to, you know, coalesce that thesis. Is that a, a decent well, intuition or? I, I think any good, I'd call it systematic process, what it's doing is it's just, it's taking your logic, right? Your intuitions, uh, going through a process of saying, are those intuitions good intuitions or bad? Meaning like how much goodness do those ideas have? And then yeah, like saying, a calibration given, process. Calibration process, which is important because there are certain things that have better goodness and other things that have worse goodness and other things that have no goodness or negative goodness. So like, I mean, this is just like a simple thing that, that has come up on Twitter. Like everyone's focused on the ISM non-manufacturing survey and it, you know, that in fact that it plummeted and it's like, okay, well, let's talk about that. That's basically attempt an attempt to have a real time indicator of services demand. Well, actually that's, you know, that 20 years ago or, or whatever in the past was pretty good. And actually it's deteriorated in quality to the point where it's actually not a good indicator of anything right now. 
it's been essentially zero correlated to actual activity in the sector over the course of the last basically post financial crisis. Like that's such a good example of like, if you go on the Twitterverse, everyone is running around looking at that stat without contextualizing its goodness, without contextualizing its goodness on an outright basis, its goodness on a relative to other indications basis on all of those different things. And that's the beauty of a systematic process, which it, you know, you could say, hey, look, anytime I'm looking at something to be an indicator of growth, I should see whether it's related to the thing that it's trying to measure. And if it's unrelated to the thing it's trying to measure, then I should start to weigh it less than if it becomes more related to the thing I'm trying to measure, right? Or I should you know, downweigh it relative to other things. And that's the thing that the mind, the, the individual's mind is, is, so, is so frankly like bad at, is weighing in a disciplined way all the information that comes to you in a real-time basis. The, the, um, the way to do that, I mean, there's like nuances of how exactly to do that, but I, you'd be surprised, like, like you have the power. <laughs> like it, it's, not, it's not grand novelty in terms of thinking about how exactly these things should work. The idea of like, you should look at an indication of growth relative to what it's trying to measure you know, there's nothing like it that insightful about what I just said, but the, the the value is the discipline and the process and the rigor of actually evaluating that in a first class way. You know what I mean? And that's right. that's what systemization brings. That you know, and and it doesn't you know, in taking away the emotions, the emotions that I did or did not eat lunch, and therefore I overreact to the ISM not manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, no, that's a really interesting characterization of systematic thinking, right? Um, I mean, we, we skew much more the other way. There's, there's always discretion, right? You're always making decisions. What indicators are you going to use? What totally. research framework are you going to apply? What markets are you going to trade? Um, there's, like, there's an infinite number of decisions that you make, even if you're a purely systematic quantitative manager. Um, but, you know, you're sort of, you know, taking that idea of systematic to a slightly higher level of, of discretion, right? Where the, the systematic component is to constantly improve calibration of the, the, the information you're using to make decisions and you know, how well your analytical process in combination with the data you're using is calibrated to positive forecasting over time and then you know, right. learning right. and adapting in response, right? Yeah, and I think that's... I think often people will immediately sit there and say, oh, well, you're just like running a big regression or something like that against everything. And like, uh, you know, you're just kind of like, you know, like that, that, that there's no, there is tremendous, even in thinking and investing in a systematic way, there's tremendous art. There's a tremendous amount of decisions that have to be made in constructing the approach, in evaluating the approach. And frankly, in running the approach on a day-to-day -day basis and oh, saying yeah, for sure. what's right, what's wrong, how confident am I? Like, you, you know, you can't, that's why you can't, um, so often people are like, well, I'll just like gin up an indicator or something and then, you know, just like run it off the cliff and it, it'll be fine. And like that, that, that's not how it works. Like you gotta, systemization is a way to create leverage and discipline in running money, but running money is what you're doing. And so like, it's important to recognize when you're hiring people to, to when you're investing in people, even people who have a systematic approach, 
you're hiring the people. So it's important not just to look at the approach, but also look at the people and see if you can be confident that the people are going to manage your money well. Do they have the skills, experience, expertise, perspective? Because, you know, I don't know if you hired somebody five years ago, they would have had to navigate through COVID. Like, do you have someone who's just going to run it off the cliff in the middle of COVID? Or do you have someone who is going to like manage the money? You know, you can't get away from managing the money. <laughs> that's the thing that's always important to reckon. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good insight. Absolutely. Um, and and even, even the most systematic managers need to intervene on occasion because there's, there are certain things that the system just does not know that, um, you know, for example, you know, there's a, 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 a peg on the Swiss franc to the euro, right? Should we, you continue to trade the, the franc, right? Like it just, <laughs> or, or the bank of Japan is, is instituting full on yield cur curve control. They're not going to let it go beyond a certain level. Now you're creating an asymmetric risk. These types of things need to be accounted for. You need to be constantly watching the market for things that, that your systems don't, don't know. Right, right. And but, that's why when, when you're looking at people, like managing money is not a part-time profession. You know what I, like, I just like, you got to be in the game. And so that's actually like one of the things that I think is kind of, um, people don't realize like the, like I'm producing this content. The reason why I'm producing the content in a lot of ways, like I've got to do this anyway. Right to run money, I have to have that level of understanding of what's going on on an ongoing basis. Now, obviously, we all know like writing something more formally is different from sort of like scribbling some notes. Although, you know, in a lot of ways, actually, my I even like got on Twitter because I just was going to like write notes about what I was thinking was going on in the world, and then like share it with some friends, <laughs> and then it had right. created it became Bobby Unlimited. The Twitter You're sharing account, you know? with fifty thousand friends and growing exactly. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It's kind of kind of funny. I, I didn't I honestly I had no idea that people would be so interested. <laughs> but it's cool, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean it's you're coming cool. into the, the the rebirth of macro too, I think. Yeah, from a, sure. from a from for a sure. from the perspective of the implications that this um sort of scarcity global economy now faces versus the, the economy of you know free trade and um you know and optimization. Liquidity. And liquidity, and right? Liquidity. Exactly. Holy yes. Macro. Precisely. Precisely. The, the era of cheap money is over. That is very, you know, it's been 15 years since that's been the case, right? Yeah. Well, it seems like it's taken the market a long time to internalize that fact. I'll tell you. <laughs> um, there's there's a good question in the chat um, from my partner Rodrigo. We struggle with this internally about how to effectively make use of macro data because the mm frequency of the data is so low, right? So you're looking at monthly data, you just don't have enough data points or enough full economic cycles or what have you to be able to draw strong statistical conclusions um, and make strong statistical inferences for forecasting right. purposes. So maybe close the loop on that for us. I mean, I think uh, you've, you've answered some of it, but- Yeah, yeah, well, I think, I think I'd, I'd take two, uh, I'd approach it, I'd answer it, Two different points on that, which is um, one, uh, I actually, I, I recently was writing about this in the context of the employment report. Like most people, they look at the U.S. employment report and they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to find the thing that tells them what's going on, right? The indicator, the series, the whatever that is leading. And the thing that's very interesting about, I think, 
the most sophisticated macro investors. And what they're actually doing is they're processing all of it, right? They're basically saying, let me look at all the different indications of this, assess its goodness, and put together a comprehensive and probabilistic picture of what's going on. That's what you're doing. And so part of the way that you beat the dearth of data points problem is by looking comprehensively. Like if, if the question is what is going on with the labor market in the US, the answer is there are hundreds of different ways to look at that problem that together I think paint a picture, you know, you can synthesize a picture together on it. And so that's part of the way that you increase real-time sample size and some are more timely and less timely. And like, there's a lot that you can do there to, to increase your resolution to, to create, you're never going to have certainty. You're going to have a probabilistic sense of the range of what's likely happening, right? That's what you're going to get to, but you can get a fair amount of information about that. And then when it comes to the, the through time part of it, which is a big part of it, how do you know, you know, people talk about the yield curve to trade stocks, right? The yield curve for recession. Right. You've got like seven instances. There are people who like have won Nobel Prizes, you know, inferring what's happened with seven data points, which, yeah, is kind right. of like, you know, like a real quant looks at you and you're like, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, what's the statistical significance of this? And, and the reality is that in macro in particular, there's not enough statistical significance to be able to run traditional quant models. And so what you have to do, this is the art and the science, is you have to balance that idea of intuitive, fundamental understanding with what you think, how you think it should work with an observational testing to say, is that actually how it plays out? And that is actually part of the, there's a big, there's a real discipline you have to have there to basically say, I'm not, what I'm not going to, I'm going to in a very disciplined way, say, here's how I think the world works. Then I'm going to go test that. What I'm not going to do is if that ends up being false or, or not a particularly good indicator, I'm not going to like tweak the optimization to get myself to a point where it's going to be better and better and better. Because you can always, with, you know, seven cycles post-war or whatever, I, I promise you, I can find you a million things that look great, that test great, look great, whatever. And part of the discipline is saying, no, the thing that will be durable is the thing that's rational and intuitive about how human nature and how people should react and respond. And for those things that are good, like, yes, that, that, I, that I can have confidence. Like if I have good intuition and I have empirical evidence that's pretty good, doesn't have to be perfect, but pretty good, then I can be confident in that. And if it doesn't work out, like you throw it away and you don't, cheat. You can't cheat. That's a big thing. No cheat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you, I, I totally hear you about the ensembling of a constellation of, of a wide variety of different data sources that are viewing the economy through, you know, from slightly different angles, right? We, we make abundant use of that same technique. Um, what's always stumped me was just, again, that if you've got a limited number of cycles, trying to try, trying even to determine which indicators are strong or weak or relevant or irrelevant or inverted, and, it's tricky, right? And I think that's part of the, the other thing is in, in macro, at least, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, separate that maybe from other places in macro. Um, the best macro managers, the, the most, the, the absolute best macro managers in the world are 60% right, 55 to 60% right in any trade in one market in one month. Just think about that. Like, yeah, yeah. 
at a high level, that's not very good. <laughs> that's actually pretty bad in the scheme of things, right? Relative to like what the world considers expertise. And so part of what you have to do, because macro is so um, imprecise, right? Since your signal to noise is so low, is what you do is you have to create a lot of bets. Because if what you do is you, you have 20 bets that are 55-45 with a reasonable amount of reliability, 55-45, Actually, you can build you can build a you know one to one point five gross of fee sharp ratio, and if you do that, you'll build the biggest institutional asset manager, you know, the biggest hedge fund in the world, right? <laughs> like, like think about that. That's what it. That's what it takes. Fundamental the, law of asset management, absolutely. Yep. Right, but the trick, the trick is diversification. Like that really is the trick in the macro sense, which is, you know, I was trading currencies. There's fifty, you know, fifty major liquid. Uh, exchange rates that are out there. And like the idea was try to get yourself to 55, 45, or even 53 or 54. If you get yourself at that point and get enough diversification, enough balance, enough things like that, you can actually do something that's pretty good. But if you looked at any one of the things, you'd kind of be like, eh, you know, kind of garbagey, right? Like not that good. Um, yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of the, you know, just get, get that coin in your favor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, we, 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 we hammer that, that drum all the time that, you know, most, if you look at any of the individual edges that we use, that the size of the edge is vanishingly small. If you look at all of those edges applied to a single market, it's marginally better. If it's only when you apply all of those edges across all of those markets at a trade frequency, a sufficient trade frequency that balances, you know, your edge against the friction, right? The, the cost of having to trade that you actually are able to generate the one, 1 1.5, two sharp ratios right. that everybody, you know, is, is looking for and right. so few can deliver. But diversification and, and, is such a huge, that, it's a huge part thing. of that. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like the, um, I feel like the the you know the the Twitter verse or the popular media like every everyone is like I don't know is the Fed gonna pivot in June or not or whatever July like that's that's one bet like that uh, genuinely that's how I look 100%. at that it's like you know yep. I don't know probably I think probably not but like that's about how good it is <laughs> is it's like one bet you know one bet yeah. of ideally you know, hundreds of bets that you'll have on over time. And so like, also on the flip side, whoever calls that bet right, like recognize that the odds that they got lucky are at least 45%, right? There's the odds that they got lucky because if there's, you know, if they were the best in the world, the odds that they got lucky were 45%, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> More likely the odds that they were lucky are something closer to 50%. And so also, it's about looking at the process, the process, not the, not, you know, to get to understand whether if run over enough sample size, you're going to get something that actually works through time. Yeah, no, that's so critical. I also just scratch my head constantly how everybody is so obsessed with the S&P or just equities <laughs> in general, you know, you know it's oh, literally, you're, you're trying to time one bet, right? You've got like, right. We've got 80, we trade 80 markets. If you orthogonalize them, it represents maybe depending on where correlations are at the moment between kind of 10 and 20 different independent bets, right? 10 and 20 versus one 
right? So right. everyone's trying to find the guy that can time the S&P. That's why I marvel at these, you know, the obsession with long, short equity managers or what, like, it just seems so, such a narrow focus. Um, I, it, it all seems so absurd to me, but this apparently is where everyone wants to focus all their time. Well, I, I also oh, think yeah. that that's, that's a function of the time, timing the last uh, decade in that particular asset class, there's oh, been, if we look so over, right. yeah. over many cycles, you know, the, there's this myopic focus on whatever's, whether it was the previous cycle and uh, the bricks or emerging markets or, or natural resources. And the S and P mm -hmm. was not as popular, you know, sort of 2000 to 2009, 10, 11. And now we've got, you know, constant fascination and we've got the buy the dip crowd that, you know, th this is this is human conditioning that's gone on, right. and it has a lot of eyes focused on it. So you know, everyone has a lot of it, and so now they want to try and manage it. And it's some some of that, which which goes across this idea of not only are you trying to get your your dashboard to feed you the information, but then you've got initial conditions to consider, right? This dashboard in a different looking like this with a different set of initial conditions will have very right. different outcomes, both short, medium, and long-term. And so there's a yeah, there's it, a whole lot. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, like, part of the reason why everyone's so focused on on the S&P 500 and if it goes up or not, right, is because for some reason, uh, everyone's sitting around with all of their assets in the S&P 500. Like, right. Like, that is crazy. <laughs> you know? Could not agree like, more. Amen. Preach, brother. Like, what, like, why? Like, okay. So, like, why are we living in a world where that's you know the essentially the only asset that anyone's holding? Not just like in like the fact that they're holding, you know, they just hold stocks. They don't even hold international stocks. You know, they they basically effectively only hold stock risk. They won't even hold international stocks. And then let me tell you, like. Let me try and mention gold to somebody, and whoo, I'm like a crazy person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pol the, probably the most polarizing asset. <laughs> but like, you know, I'm saying, hey, maybe you should buy a diversified portfolio of assets across countries. You know, gold is one of the many things you could consider, and it's like, hold out of here, you wacko! Go hide in your bunker, right? Like you gold bug, you know, crazy yeah. person. But Keep it beside anyway. my no. guns and my beans. <laughs> That's right. We've been hugely influenced, actually, by um, a lot of the research that Bridgewater's published on their all-weather portfolio. And obviously, they're not the only ones that published on sort of versus parity. But, but I mean, we couldn't agree more. All of our products, we've got some products that are just alpha and others that have a core beta component. The core beta component is a global diversified risk parity uh, portfolio, Right motivated in large part by, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, that early research that Bridgewater published. And it just makes such amazingly um, duh sense um, <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, right? You, you know, stocks and especially developed market and U.S. equities really only work in a certain kind of economic environment. Now, we've had an economic environment that is kind of Goldilocks for that for you know from 2009 to the end of 2021 right so i think a lot of the consternation at the moment is holy crap what's happening here like the last 10 years this was an easy game i thought this was an easy game right. and people are having to think about diversification in a very different way so i mean how did your stint at bridgewater just 
cause you to think about the idea of kind of strategic asset allocation relative to how most people invest? Well, I think I think the most important thing is like diversify. And there's lots of different ways you diversify and there's lots of different approaches to diversification and there's risk parity and there's other solutions. There's other solutions to the problem. But like w- one of the things I, 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 sometimes I worry that people feel almost like it's, it's just, it's too much. Like they, it's, ah, I, I can't replicate risk parity. It's like, fine, don't res- replicate risk parity. Just risk match your stocks and bonds. Let's start there. Right. Like right. not that complicated, like buy TLT instead of, you know, uh, VGIT or the equivalent of it, right? Just like buy some more duration against your stocks or just just buy 10% in BCI, you know, a diversified commodity portfolio. Just, you know, don't stress too much, buy 10% and you'll be better off than you were the day before. Like there's lots of different, re- it, it, it's, it's, um, it's a journey, right? It's a journey not necessarily a, a destination. I think there are lots of good solutions. Like if, if you know, I basically run our par in one way or another, which is the risk parity ETF for my personal strategic portfolio. Like that's what I, you know, hold our par. And then overweighted towards uh, tailed outcomes and higher inflation, because those are the two essentially risk of ruins for a, for an investor. And so, um, in the spirit of, you know, I'm well, 10 or 15% of my portfolio in gold, which people think is crazy, um, you know, hold more commodities than the average Joe, but like that kind of gives you a sense of it. It's like, a, you know, a little bit of like fine diversification and then, you know, protect yourself from the tail risk because it I think I probably spent too much time studying very terrible outcomes. <laughs> I, I think we, we all have. It, it's one of well, those examining things. Examining the full you, distribution in, of potential yeah. outcomes, right? Right, right, I mean, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, probably, I, you know, probably too many, too many, too much time studying, you know, Weimar and Argentina and Turkey and, you know, but it happens well, more than you think. As yeah. yeah. You, you so. think that now, because that hasn't happened for a while. Right, right, right. right. And, well, and, yeah, and we, yeah, right. and 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 the other, you know, the other challenge with with all of the things you've mentioned, and I think the 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 sort of the general direction of the investing public at large, this includes both retail and institutional, has been to um, uh, eschew diversification because it has not paid, especially right. pre twenty twenty one, where your commodities dragged you down, your gold dragged you down, and you know, investors tend to look at things of six months, 12 months at a time. And they say, well, why am I hauling this albatross around my neck when I have these other things that are doing so well? And they just, you know, sort of continually through a full market cycle tend to both through drift in the portfolio, right? So there's a drift that occurs in the portfolio. If we go back to that 2000, 2008, nine, I mean, the commodity side drifted up just because of the pure performance of it. So you get more there. And if you're not rebalancing and doing the exact opposite, where you say, well, I'm going to get rid of these things because they don't seem to be doing much, you end up in the situation, I think, where we are now. And, you know, I think, uh, is it Portnoy who co- coined the, uh, you know, you, 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 diversification is just always having to say you're sorry. Because something in the <laughs> portfolio, <laughs> right, just something in the portfolio is always going to be acting to the I'll one of the other else. quadrants. Oh. Right. right. And so if that particular deflation or stagflation is not occurring, you're just hauling what you view as a dead asset 
But again, if you look at this over decade long periods, which by the way, is the timeline, you inevitably will have a risk like ruin type scenario because your timeline is long enough right. that you are going to have one of those scary situations happen. And it's going to leave a big dark hole in, in your portfolio. And that is going to have some challenges for whether it's your own portfolio mm -hmm. or for the constituents of the portfolio that you're managing on behalf of, if you're an allocator or a, you know an endowment or pension fund. Yeah. Well, that's really uplifting to everyone. Well Just said. Like those <laughs> terrible risk of ruin moments, which are will inevitably hit you uh, before your death. So just be prepared. <laughs> <But> <laughs> well, it, you, you, you can, you can you sort of pay for it along the way or you pay for it all at once. Or you pay some, for it when it happens, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. That's right. Or, um, you know, or you get lucky. Um, or yet lucky, right? The, like you know, investors the, the, have for the last 10 years, for sure. Not not including yeah. the last year, maybe. Well, I, I like all those people, I think all those people who retired in, in, in 2019, right? Uh, yeah. You know, who were like levered up in like illiquid high beta strategies and retired in 2019. They're like, I killed it. I'm the best investor that existed. <laughs> oh, those other people. They're the ones who screwed yeah. up the portfolio. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, exactly. it, it, I think I think you know you, you mentioned the the TLT or extending duration to try and get that bond side of it up. When you know I think over the previous sort of ten years, at least the last five from sixteen to twenty one, people were reaching for yield in the credit space, right? Again, expanding that equity exposure rather exactly. than saying you know let's get some yield, but let's extend duration in sovereign bonds, which will have you know, largely didn't quite work out in 2022, but, you know, over other uh, cycles, you have a better um, hedge to your equity portfolio than loading it with a bunch of credit and or high yield credit, you know, things that actually are much more responsive to the uh, the growth impulse rather than um, you know, the inflation. They just compound your equity exposure. Anyway. Yeah, well, we saw the implications of stuff. what what happens when you when you've got a two legged stool, right? Um, yeah, right. In 2022. <laughs> yeah. So, Bob, um, of course, I really wanted to have you on because you've you've um, uh, produced such incredible commentary and analysis um, as we've as we've come along this journey um, through 2022 and now into 2023. Um, and obviously, the macro variables have evolved with gyrations and um, and amplitudes along certainly along the inflation axes and in, in certain other dimensions of the economy that we just haven't seen in decades. So mm. um, I'm sure the people listening are going to want to hear your thoughts on what you're currently seeing in the market. And uh, ever, as you say, everyone's obsessed with in, the inflation numbers and, and, and the Fed pivot. Um, so, you know, what, what are you seeing? I've obviously been following some of your tweets and, and your charts. You're making some really good nuanced points. Where are you at the moment with your views? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're the the first thing I just like taking a step back for for folks like um, a, a big part of what I did is I taught sort of the introductory macro course at, at Bridgewater for a long time, and I kept uh, you know this is during a lot of it during post GFC, and I kept bringing the students back to studying cycles in the '60s and the '70s, and they'd all look at me and they'd say, "Oh, do we have to study the cycle? What will it tell us? Like inflation is dead." Like, why are we doing this? It's like what a lot of what we're experiencing, like hopefully, you know, I'm getting the thank you notes now. 
you know, in terms of navigating an inflationary cycle. But like a lot of what we're experiencing is, you know, a, a flavor of inflationary cycles. So very, in some ways, like a pretty boring traditional inflationary cycle. Now it's a little different. There were supply shocks, which created obviously like a inflation shock, which kind of kicked off the inflationary side. And we had large fiscal stimulation globally that also supported the spending and kind of got us into that inflationary cycle. So that's a little different than a sort of traditional 60s or 70s version of it. But look, the big picture was we're in an inflationary cycle. Some of those things, some of those shocks are getting resolved in a transitory way in the sense of used cars went up and then they went down because it's being resolved to some extent. But what's happening is in general, the sort of baseline structural inflation is being driven by uh, by wages. Labor markets are tight. When labor markets are tight, in general, wages remain relatively elevated. Wage growth remains relatively elevated. And that's very typical in an environment where you get the sort of inflationary shock with a uh, tight labor market or an elevated economy and easy monetary policy, you often get basically an inflationary cycle. So that's what we got right now. The question is, where, where are we on that version? You know, a year ago, it was like inflationary cycle and the Fed is like out to lunch and has like, you know, left the building and have forgotten that 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 matters. Um, I'm sorry about the uh, the alarm here. This has been going on all afternoon. I apologize. I'll just keep talking through it. Um, but, you know, then you got through the year and you had the typical monetary tightening response to that inflationary cycle. And kind of we're at this point of saying, where are we in that cycle? Where are we in that process? Like, it looks like to me, we're in this sort of six months, let's call it, of what I'm calling transitory Goldilocks, which is because some of the supply shocks have been resolved, some of the issues we're, we're switching from inflation to disinflation amongst a couple of different core sectors of the economy. That is bringing overall reported inflation down. That's supporting real incomes, which is supporting real spending. And as a result, we're getting moderately good growth in a relatively tight labor market. But we can have moderately good growth with okay inflation, like fine inflation, at, at this point in the cycle as that disinflationary impulse comes through, but eventually it will no longer be sufficient to offset the, the, the services, inflation, et cetera. And so therefore what will happen is we'll come back, we'll find ourselves six to nine months from now in an environment where inflation is probably more elevated than what we expected and the Fed will probably have to do more. That's my guess. If that's the case, the bond market is totally mispriced, right? Because the bond market is saying cuts in 2020, you know, second half 2023, massive, you know, recessionary cuts. Yep. So if we get to that point where the Fed has to do more, that's going to create that that's not priced in the bond market. At the same time, we look at the equity market and the equity market is sort of saying there's not going to be an earnings recession. Everything's fine, which makes, you know, one possible possible outcome is that the Fed has done enough, and when all these dominoes flow through, the economy will weaken in something like six months from now, right? It will it will start to get you know feel like recession six months from now. At which point, the stock market is totally mispriced because if we're going into a recession, like you know, basically earnings expectations on a level basis are higher than they were a year ago, right? The equity market is actually more expensive today than it was a year ago, and so 
one of the things is happening, like the stock market's mispriced, the bond market's mispriced. They're both kind of implausible. And at the same time, what's being priced into the commodity inflation side of the market is basically a return to, to perfection, right? <laughs> like we are absolutely getting to 2% and it's going to be perfect and spot on and stuff like that. And that also is totally like that is likely implausible in the sense of if we were going to go below it, the Fed can ease and support the, the economy. So it, the risks are skewed to the upside that the Fed hasn't done enough on it. And so you basically have transitory Goldilocks combined with asset markets that are basically pricing in totally implausible scenarios in one form or another. And that actually creates a lot of opportunity uh, in terms of positioning through this dynamic. Yeah, well said. Um, I kind of yammered on there. I apologize. No, no, no. That, no that I, I, think, I think that's that, that spot on, right? <laughs> yeah. Somebody in the way assets are priced and the asset mar- asset classes are priced, there's an incongruity with the potential outcomes that is yep. noticeable. And, and that is being largely ignored by investors as they kind of look through the last 10 years of what their habits have been and their reactions have been to these types of things. And thus, you have an opportunity in active management to have much right. further dispersion created, which which creates the opportunity for active management to provide excess yes. returns. Yes. And in particular, at a time when passive portfolios, whether they be risk parity or otherwise, may sort of struggle. And yeah, I mean, I, know, I, this this is going to be a very challenging experience, and that. This transitory Goldilocks, like what we're seeing and what we've seen in the beginning of these, this year is like uh, the beginning of this year, 6040 has been doing great, right? And you could imagine what happens is we get the circumstance where the growth is okay and the inflation comes down and everything looks okay and 6040 does great, but it's, it's not a durable circumstance. And so you could easily have people levering into a into assets in the 6040 and then get royally <laughs> hammered if either outcome happens which is either the the economy topples over unexpectedly or the fed has to tighten more like the combination of those two things is really bad and you could as a strategic investor you're not well positioned for that path and so what can you do? You can either increase your diversification, which is like if you're just a strategic investor, like increase your diversification, try and put your, you know, hold more cash, lower your risk, increase your your protection against elevated inflation. You know, don't be a hero, muddle through this year and it'll be okay. That's what I would do if you were just like, hey, I want to put on a portfolio and not worry about it. Or what you're going to do is you're going to have to find the most sophisticated asset managers because this is going to be hard. <laughs> like let's be honest like hmm. this is going to be a doozy of a year is right. what we're going to experience here right and, and, and I think, so go ahead keep going and so like the beta guys are not like they're gonna they're gonna get ruined by this thing. yeah like you need those sophisticated people to help you and so so that that's the other thing i think you touch on that not many people are kind of putting their finger on previous to 2021 bonds are a great offset to stocks so your portfolio vol is just lower uh, ambiently. You move into this scenario and as you lay it out, that's neither a good situation for bonds or stocks. And so now you've observed an increased correlation between these two assets, which means your portfolio level of volatility is much higher, which would say to you, I should probably own some cash. 
Right. Yes, that's right. totally right. I should have the take... same ball. You should hold 30 or 40 percent cash if the correlation is flipped from negative 0.5 to positive 0.5. Right. Exactly. Like, and it, yeah. What's and, interesting and too is something. that's the, the other thing. Right? Exactly. Not that bad. Year, yeah. A year ago, it was <laughs> Bubkiss. Now it's, you know, sort of whatever, three to four and a half, even on the trend. And if you do get rates higher, well, you know, your rates are going to be ticking up It'll depending on what rate. your duration is and all that sort of stuff. But holding that cash means it happens instantaneously, right? Yep. You're getting higher cash rates as that happens. And so if you've got this 30% cash, you, you're dampening the portfolio vol. You've got dry powder to look at things when they become more attractive. And you're getting a pretty good yield on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, I actually had not heard many people frame it in the risk taking context, the correlation flip to the risk taking context. I think it's a really, I think it's a very insightful point. Um, and, and, and paints a very compelling picture for why, even if you're just, you're like, I like 60 40 for whatever bizarre reason you like 60 40. Mm -hmm. You've got to be holding more cash relative to what you were doing before to de risk. It's a, it, it really is a good point. Agreed. Another another point that I think is often missed is that several hedge fund categories actually hold a lot of cash on the balance sheet, oh, right? Yeah. Like macro strategies to trade futures, market neutral strategies. They hold a huge amount of cash already, right? So if you've got a if if you want to own cash, but also at the same time get exposure to strategies that may be able to more effectively navigate or diversify against your strategic holdings and stocks and bonds over the next few years, while also delivering a yield, these, um, these macro funds, CTA funds, market neutral funds, other types of, of hedge fund strategies that hold a lot of cash, they might hold 80% of their assets in cash, uh, you know, <coughs> strategically against their futures positions or against their, you know, their long and short stock positions. And you're, they're, they're generating a yield on that cash. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. two years ago, you're getting no yield on that excess collateral. Now you're getting right. four or 5% on that excess collateral, which is going a long way towards overcoming whatever the excess fees are. Right. So the benefit of some of these great structural diversifiers is a, they lower volatility because they're either, um, you know, zero or in some cases negatively correlated to your um, core, your core strategic portfolio, um, and there you're getting the yield pickup from the large cash allocation on the balance sheet. Um, so I, I want to pick a, at your the point that you made about why you think we're in this kind of, kind of um, transitory Goldilocks, but then what are the structural factors? that are extant in, in the current market that you think are going to pick up again in, in six, 12 months that, that many market participants aren't seeing, right? Like what, how is the, how is the economy structurally changed so that when we cross this transitory chasm, um, we move back to a, a higher level of average inflation. Do you think? I think the, the, the key question um, is where do wages and incomes on a nominal basis settle? And for decades, basically, wage growth was 2%. Like I, I, can, I can remember creating models where I just typed in 2%, you know, like that's like as if it was, you know, sent from heaven that yep. <laughs> wages 
and inflation shall be 2%, right? But that's not the circumstance that we necessarily have on a forward-looking basis. For a variety of reasons, uh, labor markets across the developed world are actually relatively tight. A big part of that is that even though growth is not that strong in an environment of low productivity and an environment of negative, you know, negative demographics, um, what you have is you have a circumstance where you have even like a muddling economy actually can create some labor market tightness. Now, if we didn't have, I think, the inflationary shocks that existed, you know, a year or two ago, my guess is we would have seen a more of a Japanese type outcome, which is kind of this like everyone kind of accepts that wages grow very modestly, even though the labor market is relatively tight. But what that has done is, you know, in some ways, and, and, and this is a little unsatisfying, is like it has inspired or created a reason why labor can negotiate in a, an immediate reason for why labor can negotiate for higher wages. You even see that like very tactically, like um, uh, to get like real weedy. Like if you look at the Atlanta fed wages amongst hourly high school educated workers, what you see is that in that spike in gasoline prices in June that spiked up and then spiked down June and July, you actually saw wages, wage growth increase right in line with that. So you can see, you can tangibly see how people are like, I need more money because I need to put gas in my car. So I have a, and the labor market's tight. That's important to consider. And the labor market's tight. You can't find anybody else. So you better give me a little bit more dough so I can do this. And so that's created a higher rate of nominal incomes. And that higher rate of nominal incomes then allows for a higher rate of nominal spending, right? The higher rate of nominal incomes maintains. It's not a not a spiral. Stop. We don't, there's no spirals, right? It's just it's a maintenance. If I keep getting paid, my wages grow at five or six percent. I'll keep spending growth nominally at five or six percent, and we'll just keep plodding along like that, right? And I think that's the key question: is Are we going to go back to the world of two percent inflation? Or are we in this, because of a structurally tight labor market, a more persistent 5 or 6% type wage outcome? And if we are, that, that's the thing that Powell, and it's not just Powell, it's also Lagarde and others when they talk about what they're worried about. That's the key question that they're worried about. I'd say the jury's still out. But it's my guess, having looked at things that look like this through time, is we're <laughs> going to see higher than what most people expect longer in terms of inflation uh, than is currently priced into the bond market or into inflation swap markets or things like that. Like that's my guess is where we're going. And so that's why I'm squinting at these things, you know, like the Atlanta fed wage thing comes out, like, like let's get the spectacles on and start squinting at it. It's important because where that settles will be the determinant of how this whole thing plays out. It's very important. And it's, and it's ambiguous. I don't know. And anyone who tells you that they know is, you know, is blowing smoke. They, they don't yeah. really know, right? This is the this is the art. This is the ambiguity of the macro environment, right? You got to deal with that. And are those wages sticky? Like once they rise, do they not like you know the gas prices dropped? Did did the you know wages drop immediately? And in, in, well, the, or the are, they, are they a little bit more slowed. sticky? To, right, the growth slowed, and so that's kind of the question. Like the levels 
you, know, you have an adjustment up in levels and then the question because inflation is the change in prices and so that connects to the, the wage growth right mm-hmm. the nominal wage growth and so the question is how fast does the nominal wage growth go and and um it looks like it's persistent that's that's the thing it, you know it looks it's but you could envision let's just say everyone you know gas prices went from I don't know, you know, $3 to $5. Everyone had a level reset in their wages and then we all carried on. Like, I agree, that would then return us back to a zero or whatever low inflation dynamic. It, the issue is, it's, it, you know, because it's it's um, it's discontinuous, right? Like the, infl- the inflation happens and the person negotiates and the inflation, you know, and then the spending happens. Like, there, you know, like that, it, it, it's not, it, it almost necessarily doesn't create an an immediate adjustment, right? It's a dynamic. It's a it's a dynamic that interplays with itself right. rather than an immediate dynamic. You know, an immediate readjustment. Feedback loops over right, and over again right. through through right. through a number of deri- derivations. Is part exactly, of this exactly. Goldilocks thesis um, due to just absurdly high year over year comps? Like we're just coming into a period where, you know, obviously inflation growth readings were were really, really high during Q1 and Q2 last year. And therefore, you know, as we're comparing year over year, moving through yep. Q1 and Q2, it's going to look like inflation is moderating, but really it's still persisting at, at a, a, a dangerously high rate. No, I, I mean, this. some of this is, is sort of uh, real in the sense of like, if you look at the, I, you know, this is sort of thing like I, some people look at year over year, like I think probably the best thing and what the Fed would look at would be kind of a smooth monthly, I don't know, three months, six months, something like that. And you're seeing it in those measures as, you know, you're, it, it's not just a back end thing. Like it's real, like used auto prices are falling, like furniture prices are falling, you know, like stuff's coming down. Um, oil prices are falling. Things that are connected to oil prices are falling, like airline fares and things like that. Like it's 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 not like a technical issue. It's like, no, prices are falling. Um, or there's a subset of prices that are falling. Right. Yeah. And so um, and so that that that's a that's a real thing. But the issue that people often forget about is in order for inflation, you know, if inflation, let's just say labor or services inflation is running at five percent. That's basically what it's running at. Just draw that line, just draw it across. In order for aggregate inflation to remain at 2%, what you have to have is the prices of all the other stuff have to keep falling at the same rate on and on and on and on and on again. And that's just not like how it works. As an example, there's a big disinflationary impulse from oil falling, but like it's not like oil falls 20% a month, right? (laughs) Because then we'd get to zero real fast, right? That's not how it works. And so the fact that oil prices are stabilizing and actually slightly increasing at the current levels means that you're shifting from a disinflationary impulse from falling oil prices to inflationary impulse of falling prices. And that's going to necessarily create a positive impulse on inflation. And so that's, that's the cycle we're in is we're in the cycle of going, of getting that disinflationary impulse that'll flow through, that'll eventually revert. And we'll get back to that structural inflation, that structural labor inflation, which is the thing that matters. Like right. that's why we got to be laser focused on understanding what that is, because that will make or break. And that's what Powell, that's what Lagarde, you know, that's what they're focused on. That's what they're really thinking about. They don't really care if used auto prices are going up or down. Like, you know, 
they're not buying used autos. And, 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 you know, it's not the thing that matters to people the day to day. Yeah. How important is the reflexive relationship between the Fed's desire to um, raise risk premia, slow, or at least moderate economic growth in order to moderate wage pressures and, and, and pressures in, in certain parts of the economy, maybe the housing market, et cetera, um, play out against the animal spirits, right? In, in equities and credit and in the rates markets, right? It seems like um, the risk takers are determined to play chicken with the Fed, right? They're, they're amazing, right? How, how do you think that dynamic plays out? How is the market perceiving the potential reflexivity there? Um, you know, just generally, what do you think of that dynamic? Well, I think part of what we're, I think we're seeing, um, we're seeing a couple different things playing out, like in this, like, why are we getting to chicken, right? I think part of what we're seeing is, Frankly, they, like, there still is this hangover of liquidity in the market in one mm -hmm. form or another. And it, it you know, it, it speaks to the fact that how many people, how many things have you read out there that it's like, the Fed is engaged in the greatest monetary tightening in the history of time and the economy will go to shit as a result. And the answer is like, well, first of all, you know, Paul Volcker raised interest rates 1200 basis points in six weeks. So like, you know, that's a tightening. <laughs> you you call this tightening. a tightening? Uh, yeah, yeah, you call this a tightening? That guy knows how to tighten. But anyway, um, but like this idea of like, yes, money is tighter than it was before, but also there have been trillions of dollars of QE. There's been zero interest rates for forever. There's been low bond yields for forever. There's the secularly low mortgage rates on average for households have locked in like there's all of this hangover effect of liquidity that just you know and, and as a market participant it's like you don't exactly know exactly where it's going to like pop out here or there but like it is interesting to kind of see it, it it's kind of everywhere right you know it, it's kind of it's kind of constant there um all the time um you know what i mean like you you kind of see it everywhere that you go and so that's part of what's driving the dynamic um does that make sense? In turn, you know, I think that that is. Well, I, it does I, make sense, but I suppose that does wear off over time, right? As as right, right, and it's and it's slowly, you know, and it's slowly but surely wearing off. I think that's yeah. the, you know, that's the issue is that it's slowly but surely wearing off. But I think the big question that is on everyone's mind, I mean, certainly that's on my mind, is that where, like, when does that roll off? Right, like. And I think it's a bit ambiguous when that rolls off. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people who will sit there and say, oh, well, it's certain that it'll roll off on this day or it's dead this day. And part of the part of the big picture uncertainty that exists out in the market right now is that there is uncertainty about all the sensitivities. That's that. You're breaking up, Bob. Sorry, you're, you're, that you're breaking really up. We know uh, all. Oh. Sorry, we, we don't really know what all those sensitivities are in the market, right? That's that's the thing that's so challenging to understand is that there's cross-cutting forces, debt levels are higher, but at the same time, there's been all this liquidity. And so when when we talk about, 
there's lots of people who will have very confident answers in exactly how this is going to play out in terms of the sensitivity of the economy to interest rate hikes or the sensitivity of the economy to um, to other, you know, to interest rate hikes or to to QT and all that stuff. They'll, they'll very confidently say it is like this or it is like that. And the and the real answer. And, and the, the amazing thing is people are very confident that it's going to be a disaster and very confident that the economy can withstand it, right? Like as evidenced by the stock and bond market, right? The, the mm-hmm. bond market is very confident that we'll be a recession and the stock market is very confident we'll be okay, okay, at least for a while, right? And the answer is you don't really know. And that, and we don't really know. And that is such an important thing when you're navigating, recognizing that you don't know what the sensitivity of the economy is to monetary policy is critical to being able to navigate through this market because then like this is not the time to be a hero <laughs> like be prepared any of these things could play out it's very uncertain uh and you know i have my view of where it's tilted i think it's tilted towards the cycle moving slower and the fed needing to do more but i also wouldn't go you know whole hog into saying that it's impossible that the economy could start to deteriorate relatively rapidly. Like you gotta, you gotta be prepared for both plausible outcomes. Well, and I think that's where the macro then starts to move into that. You got to manage money and the recognition of these other positions that you have are diversifying. They're considering the probable outcomes that could occur Right. And just because you're you're saying, well, maybe it's all Goldilocks, there's a 30% probability of that. That doesn't mean you weigh your portfolio with a zero allocation to the assets that would do well in that. Right. Right. If, right. if you're if you're well calibrated, you would have a probabilistic weighting to some of these outcomes as as you navigate and continue to course correct going through the uncertainty. Right, right. That's exactly right. Is you want to you wanna be able, you want to be careful to not go all in on one of these outcomes. Like that is the most prudent way to manage through this cycle is, is not, not all in. And the other thing I would really emphasize is it's not just not all in, but also cause you're uncertain. Like, why are you taking full, full, like whole hog leverage, like whole hog risk? Like there's, there's no, you don't have to like, yep. it, like, I, it's as if people don't recognize like, yeah, hey, you just hold cash. Like cash is fine. Like, you know, if, if it, if it helps you sleep better <laughs> at night, um, it's fine. It's fine to, to de-risk. It's fine. You know, we look at, we look at what hedge funds are doing and their positioning and stuff like that. And hedge funds right now are running, you know, the lowest risk that they've run in 25 years outside of crisis environments and, you know, like those are the most sophisticated, they can do whatever they want <laughs> right now. And their answer is it's pretty uncertain. Let's look, run low risk. Let's be reasonably balanced. Let's try and tactically, you know, tilt in ways that kind of give us a bit of an advantage, but let's not go whole hog, frankly, on anything. Um, and that I think is actually uh, reflective of a very prudent way of managing mm-hmm. money in this particular environment. Yeah. Yeah. Endorse. Exactly. And a good segue, Bob, to um, to your core business at the moment. Right. Which is um, which is analyzing and replicating um, hedge funds. Right. So maybe if you don't mind, um, just give us a brief description of 
the objective of, of the fund you've launched? What is it? And, and um, maybe we can get into how you think about building it, what you're trading inside of it to try and replicate yep. the hedge fund. Let's, let's go into that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, what, um, what our thought, you know, what occurred to me and, and for those of you who are at sort of the top of the, haven't necessarily listened since the top of the podcast um, is, you know, my basic, my basic thought was, is there a way to kind of bring this idea of diversified low cost indexing, you know, from beyond bonds and stocks and bring it to the world of two and 20. And I think the, the approach to that, you can't just like invest in the funds themselves, right? Like that the way you can, you buy, you know, Vanguard just sees the S&P 500 and goes and buys it. It's not that complicated. Right. And then they compete on price. If you try to invest in the products themselves, the good ones wouldn't take your money. The, most, you know, and plus you'd get charged two and 20 fees, which is kind of the problem. Plus you'd have to pay yourself and then you have fees on top of fees on top of fees. And so the, our basic idea was, well, what if what we could do is look over the shoulder of the managers, kind of understand what they're doing, sort of see what they're doing in close to real time and compare and, and take that understanding and package it up in an investor friendly form of the ETF. And that is kind of the the, the core idea, which is, creating a imperfect but pretty good replication of what they're doing using our years decades of experience in running hedge fund style money right kind of get a pretty good replication of what they're doing and then charge a lot lower fees to create fee alpha which you know there's no more durable fee alpha in the world than fee alpha and then also put it in the ETF structure, which is a much more tax efficient structure for many investors. And so that kind of idea is like imperfect, diversified, imperfect replication of two and 20 strategies at a quarter of the fees and half the taxes, right? That's kind of the idea. And so, you know, that that's what, that the essence of HFND, which is the first product, is to try and replicate the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry, but do it at that much more reasonable 95 basis point management fee rather than do a two and 20 style management fee. Okay. And so presumably you don't have any insight or not, you're not, at least you're not using any direct uh, information about hedge fund pos uh, positioning from a source that actually aggregates what all the hedge funds are holding. I don't, presumably that's not what you're doing. So you're needing to sort of infer what they're holding from um, daily returns of the different investment categories of the index or whatever. Yeah. How do you think yes. about that? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, there is some reporting like 13 F reporting, stuff like that, which for those who are in the industry know that that's incomplete and mm -hmm. not very good and sometimes even manipulated. So, um, so, you know, what we're doing, what we're doing instead is we're, we're uh, what we look at is the returns. Uh, and the reason why we look at returns is returns are comprehensive and they're the truth. You can't lie about your returns or you go to jail. <laughs> That's the nice thing about returns, right? And so embedded in returns is understanding of how managers are behaving right, in a holistic way. And so what we do is we, we take the overall hedge fund industry, we break it down into the individual sub-strategies like global macro, fixed income, ARB, et cetera. Each one of those different sub-strategies has a different plausible set of exposures that they could have on at any point in time. A global man macro manager or global macro set of managers is very different from equity long short, which is very different from 
managed futures, let's say, if you put all those different things together. And so because we kind of know what exposures each one of those substrategy has, we can look at the returns and compare those returns to, uh, to a portfolio of plausible exposures and essentially solve for what portfolio best describes the returns that we're seeing in close to real time, either daily or, um, you know, there's good information relatively quickly into the subsequent month and basically solve for what that portfolio is and then use that understanding and translate it into positions. And the, and the, and the, and the critical thing to understand is, you know, you could solve any one month's returns or set of days returns with any portfolio could give you some, crazy, crazy outcome, right? Like, who knows, like, you know, you can always find an optimization for something. But I think the thing that that is important to recognize is because uh, positioning is path dependent, there's actually a lot more information value in the pattern of returns uh, than many people realize. Because what you could do is you can understand today's returns in the context of what positions determine today's returns but that is in the context of the returns yesterday and the set of plausible exposures that determined the returns yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. These, these ideas are continuous. These, these positioning is continuous. It's not discontinuous. And so there's we use sophisticated machine learning techniques basically paired with our experience running money in these strategies to basically curate or design a systematic process that allows us to infer what they're doing based upon that pattern of returns and the plausible exposures. Okay. So take what, that for a Friday afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> that's, Beauty. Now we're really down the fairway. Now we're, yeah. we're really where, where we, we, we wanted to get to. We're off um, the tee. <laughs> yeah. So what set of markets um, are you using to replicate? Like, what are you able to trade? Are you trading individual stocks? Are you trading ETFs, futures? Yeah, yeah. So this is a good example of, um, let's call it the art as well as the science, right? Like one of the key questions in this sort of uh, approach is where is there that nice balance between signal and noise, right? So we could create single security optimization, you know, optimizations or replications using single securities of single hedge fund performance. And I bet I could show you something that looks really good, like really, really good. And I'd say it was big data and I'd say it was great. And we really understand this and it would be total garbage, right? Because you'd have no confidence that you'd actually be inferring what they're doing. And so instead, what, what you know, this is a, a choice, a design element is we basically said, we think that the, the sort of wisdom of the crowd is at these sort of fun strategy levels. Like, you know, everyone might pick a specific security, but in general, you'll find global macro managers are long bonds or short bonds and kind of how that nets out is insightful. And so we think that that kind of look at it at the substrategy level, like the all the equity long short or all the global macro managers and look at the exposures that they could have at sort of that. I don't want to call it macro, but sort of that aggregated level, which is like, you know, everyone has a view on is it Tesla or is it, you know, this tech stock or this tech stock or this tech stock. But when you aggregate it, are you are they basically long list tech stocks or are they short the tech stocks? And that's really the idea there in terms of curating it at that level. So what we trade is we trade 50 of the biggest, most liquid markets, you know, the major stock bond 
equity indices, geographies, factors, uh, <laughs> sectors, things like that. We sort of trade all of those things. Our universe is a universe of 50 ETFs is to start off. That's what we're trading as long and short positions in, in low cost index ETFs. We may add futures or swaps over time, depending on you know what makes sense and what's the lowest cost and highest liquidity. And so that's the basic idea is you sort of put that, um, you, 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 you curated it kind of at that level and that's where you can be sort of confident that you're actually getting signal instead of noise. Okay, great. So, and you're able to go short as well. So what's your, I guess there's, is there a maximum level of total aggregate short that you can be in the fund? Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, I, I don't know, like, I don't know how uh, uh, ETF nerdy folks are here in this, uh, on this platform, but there's, there's some regulatory constraints um, right. that actually, a number of things that actually increase flexibility that came out during COVID um, that allows you to run more sophisticated strategies as long as you implement, frankly, like common sense risk controls, um, things you should be doing anyway, even if you weren't in an ETF. Um, and so we run the strategy like well within those tolerances. We have you know constraints that are that mean that we're never going to get close to those uh, tolerances structurally. Um, and it's fine. It, we get uh, enough risk on um, uh, using, you know, a, a, a very, very modest amount of leverage, like right, right. 50 long side and negative 30 or 40% short side. And, and that's fine. We're not, you know, there's no, no issue with that. And if you, well, yeah, because I was thinking if you're including uh, indices like equity long short, they typically run at kind of a long bias anyway, right? So that, that's right. I mean, that is true that those mm -hmm. funds have, uh, that have some bias to them, uh, some beta in them. Um, and, you know, I think the thing, if you look at the allocator community, the allocator community, uh, you know, part of what we're doing is not just replicating the individual sub-strategies, but we put them together in HFND aligned with the AUM and the different sub-strategies. And part of that is, you know, frankly, a reflection of leveraging the allocator community's understanding and weighing of where alpha exists and what is that good. You know, we all know that there's a balance between peer risk and, you know, alpha return. And there's always a balance between alpha, you know, and the goodness of alpha and consistency with beta in order to create a more consistent return stream. And so that overall portfolio that let's call it the you know, aggregate gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry that has a little bit of beta in it, uh, in aggregate, you know, um, like, uh, yeah, it's, that beta has been increasing you know, over time bit. too. Right. I think like there was a time a while ago when the beta of the HFRI, uh, index was close to 0.9 or something on the S and P. Right. So there's, there's definitely yeah. some beta embedded in, the. In, in the yeah, it, it depends on which index you're looking at and stuff like that. The aggregate index on a gross of fees basis, the beta is like 0.25. Um, oh, okay. Basically. Yeah. So that's lower yeah. than I would have expected. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, so, you know, it's not, not, you know, it's, it's that. Yeah. 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 Is that no, high? Is that low? That's what it is. Uh, that's what it is. Exactly. Yeah. What about market neutral? Obviously, you're, you're not able to then include market neutral in your basket of. Um, well, I think it's a, it, important to recognize that because what we're doing is we're putting all these strategies together. And so things like market neutral strategies, we can put together and we can pair with other strategies because we can do cross strategy netting. Um, and so what we do is we essentially, you know, a universe of securities that would be uh, appropriate 
for, you know, for hedge funds or long short equity strategies that have beta in them, we can pair against uh, neutral strategies and basically net those two sets of positions out and be able to, to run that portfolio in that way. And that really is one of the advantages. I mean, structurally, like one of the advantages of this approach of HFND is um, any one of these sort of sub-strategy approaches like managed futures or global macro or equity long short, <laughs> any one of them is like, you know, pretty good. They're not, they're not unbelievably good. You wouldn't, you know, only hold those strategies in a portfolio. So each one of them is kind of pretty good. And part of the idea is you put them all together and you get a much more consistent return stream over time than betting on any one particular one at any point in time. Yeah, no, I mean, I love that idea. I was just thinking for market neutral, that presumably they're targeting a high level of idiosyncratic risk, right? At the stock level, but you can certainly tease out different beta tilts, of, or different sector tilts, across, that kind of stuff, right? Right, right. Across funds, it's true. Yeah. Any one individual manager will right, have right. individual stock selection. But again, that's part of the idea is to say, but then there's sort of the wisdom of the crowd, which is all of them together. And do they like tech or do they not like, you know, or do they like healthcare? Um, yeah, yeah. And there's, Sector indices, for, yeah, for sure. Would right. Be and there's real, eliminated. I think there's, there's real alpha in their understanding at that level. Like they're, they're um, at the industry wide or at the sector or the, the, the strategy level, that wisdom of the crowd, as an example for is, is uh, hedge fund managers, equity, long, short managers are like way smarter than mutual fund managers in aggregate. <laughs> like, and even, you know, median gross of fees, hedge fund manager is like, hundreds of basis points better than mutual fund managers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. On an alpha basis, just, for sure. On an alpha basis, they're just like way smarter. Yeah, And, and that's very consistent through time. You're right? muted, Mike, or something. I would say yeah, it's structural as well, right? The structure of a mutual fund, the objectives that you would have in there would dictate a limit of the alpha that you could provide it would right. be very, you know, uh, poignant to the to the area that you're risk that you're managing, the index that you're going to be tracking, all of that stuff. So, I mean, they're they're probably smarter, but there's also a lot of structural issues that would that would impede a mutual fund manager from having the flexibility to compete with, you know, the hedge fund space. What's what what what's your expected sort of long term volatility on the on the portfolio? Yeah, yeah. I mean, hedge fund. Uh, I, I think it's. Um, Often people will hear hedge funds and they'll be like, oh, well, you know, they were, their returns are only so-so and like, isn't the S&P 500 better and stuff like that. And I think what that speaks to is the fact that hedge funds have a fee problem. They actually don't have a strategy problem. They have a fee problem. They charge people too many darn fees, <laughs> right? That's the problem with hedge funds. And so hedge fund, hedge fund returns gross of fees are, uh, you know, like 100 basis points better than stocks uh, over a long period of time. They have about half the volatility on a monthly basis and about a third of the drawdowns. Like that's what hedge, that's what hedge fund returns look like, gross of fees. And if you can get access to that or something even close to that, that's a great strategy. You want that in your portfolio. Right. And that's the basic idea. And the way that the hedge funds do that, I think, is is also important, which is, um, you know, during more challenging market environments like what we're seeing right now, 
to be blunt, they're relatively conservative with the risk taking that they that they engage in in order to preserve capital. And then there are times where their confidence is higher and they take on more risk. And that's when they deliver a pretty good return. And the thing that's so interesting about it is if you can if you can limit the drawdowns and deliver a pretty good return in other times, you actually end up getting a return stream that is a fantastic return stream, right? Like that's, you know, it's the, it's boring. <laughs> that's the thing. Like we're trying to de develop a product that will gently deliver equity-like returns that you don't have to think too much about. You know, it's kind of boring. No one's going to call you and complain about it, right? It's not going to go way up and way down. Like a nice, boring moderately, you know, moving up into the right return stream that's well diversified. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to deliver with HFND. And frankly, that's what hedge funds are pretty good at doing. Uh, you know, they've shown a very long track record of being able to do that. I think maybe also where you were going with that, Mike, is that um, one of the problems that hedge funds have is that they operate at too low vol, right? So, you know, your typical market neutral fund might operate at a, <laughs> a six vol, um, your typical um, long short equity fund might operate at a 10 or 12 vol. You're just not able to generate the dollar alpha necessary yes. to overcome your fees at that level of volatility. Even if you're running at a one or one and a half sharp, right. but if you're running at a six fall, you're generating 9% pre-fees. You know, your performance fee take is is not that high, but it's high as a percentage of the total return, right? So well, three, if you I mean, even there, right? What is it? 3.4%, right? <laughs> like, sure, sure. But I mean, if you're delivering 6% of alpha, then that 3.4% is, is less ish, less of an issue than if you're only delivering, you know, 3.4% 3, 3 of alpha, then you're consuming all of the alpha in fees, right? So, And, and that literally is, that is the problem is that the hedge fund managers consume all their alpha in fees. And so if you can cut fees, like instead of hedge fund managers taking all the alpha, and they don't actually consume all of it, they consume like 60% of it or 70% of it for themselves and yeah. give clients, you know, just enough to make it worth their while, <laughs> but not too much. And imagine the idea of saying, hey, look, instead of the split being, you know, 70, 30, or 80, 20 to the manager, what if what we did is we flipped it and we made it 20% to the manager and 80% to the, to the investor. And then the other thing, you know, from a U.S. perspective, a U.S. taxable investor perspective is like the hedge fund managers put these things for taxable investors, put these things in these structures, which suck for the investor, right? Like you put it in an LP structure it's taxed at ordinary income. You get, you know, distributions each year. You actually have to pay the taxes even if you don't sell out of your position. Like you have a bunch of paperwork. You have to file extra things. They send the paperwork to you late. Like I know these sound like very practical, you know, issues that you have to face. But if you're an RIA in, you know, the middle of the country and you have moderately sophisticated investors and you're looking at that thing and you're saying, God, that, that looks like a pain. I mean, combined with the fact that you can't get into the good ones, <laughs> right? Yeah. You right. Get yeah. Into the ones that will take your money. Like you look at that story and you say, I'm essentially locked out of getting anything close to the quality of returns that, you know, an institutional investor can, can get into. And that's really what we're trying to do with HFND, which is 
you know, look, it, this is not a perfect replication. It's not, you know, it is a pretty good replication. It's pretty darn good replication, but it has a lot of other advantages, which is it's a much lower fee. It's much more efficient tax wise. You don't have to fill out any paperwork. You could buy it on your platform tomorrow. You, know, you just click the button, boom, you buy it, right? That you buy it across client accounts without paperwork. And just to like, you know, mostly get, let advisors get access to something that's pretty good in a way that currently they're totally locked out of uh, because of the, the practical realities of the situation. Yeah, and, right. and so how do you, how do you, when you're chatting with RIAs, the question that we get all the time is how much, how much can I get in? How much should I have in my portfolio? How do you think through that as you're, as you're talking with the growing client base that you have? And a part of my question was, you know, if, if it is lower of all, I mean, it's this great sort of core thing that's going slowly, you know, from the lower left to the upper right. Um, but it's not really a crisis alpha thing, or is it just to stabilize the rest of the strategic portfolio, if you will? And then, you know, how do you, you, you then run into some compliance departments, I suppose, too, where they're looking at these things, are they core, are they not core? And how, how do you, how have you found navigating all of that? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I've, I found at least so far is that um, most RIAs I talk to are, first of all, they're quite sophisticated. Like, you know, they're sophisticated as any institutional investor. If anything, they're actually like more sophisticated and entrepreneurial than traditional institutional investors. Um, as part of that sophistication, what they recognize is that alternatives have a good, you know, a very, very useful place in their portfolio. And they're already actively looking at something like 20% of their portfolio in alternative assets in one form or another, in, you know, in one shape or another. And that mostly what they're doing is they are sitting there going, God, it sucks to have to go through this. You know, like I, you know, I talked to a guy who is running, you know, a $5 billion midtown Manhattan, you know, a nicer office than I've ever sat in in my life. And he sits there and he goes like, I, I want allocation alternatives. I know my clients want it. They're sophisticated enough to understand it. It improves the overall portfolio outcomes on a strategic basis, but I've got 200 clients and I can't get them to fill out the darn paperwork. You know, and, and that is just an impossible, it's just impossible to get the <laughs> busy people filling out the paperwork and dealing with all of that. And, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, I, I empathize, like I know what it takes to run a business and all of the things that it takes that are not the core of the business. I'm sure you all appreciate that as well. And so those sorts of things are the things that you need to like cut out of your life in order to make it more efficient and spend time on the good stuff. And so typically they're already allocated in that 10 to 20% range in alternatives. And so we're often, you know, the conversation starts with how are you a good alternative to the things that I'm already looking at in that bucket, in that alternatives bucket. And that ends up being a pretty productive conversation. Um, you know, cause what we're trying to do is hit the main pain points they have. Um, you know, that's, they have, they obviously have pain points and we're trying to create a product that's, that's helping address those pain points. Um, and I think, you know, also I'd say most big strategic asset allocators, like that's kind of what they allocate to alternatives, right? Alternatives mean liquid markets, hedge fund yep. style strategies, 10 or 20%. Like it's not a science, but 10 or 20% is about that balance of you have, conf you, have, you have some confidence that it will be better than your traditional liquid markets portfolio, but you don't, 
you're not certain. So you don't want to go all in on, you know, you don't want to bet the farm on alpha. You want to be careful. You know, you want to put some of the farm in alpha, right? Because it might, they might not have edge. They might not work in beta is, you know, worse ratio, but more reliable and you can be more confident. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I could certainly poke and prod at um, some of the technical details of the model. Are you the are you the quant that built it, or you've got a team that kind of helped out, or what's your? Yeah, yeah. Um, it is uh, the two of us. Uh, my partner uh, Bruce uh, McNevin is uh, was uh, at hedge funds for for many many years, uh, thirty years as you know a data scientist before data science existed <laughs> as a thing. Um, and uh, professor of econometrics uh, and uh, at NYU, and um, and so he is a core part of building the model. I also have built these strategic models um, uh, for a long time, and so that's a big part of uh, you know the two of us together are the hands on keys. You know, uh, some yeah, people yeah. ask like, how could you have built this model? The answer is, well, we've done it for twenty years, and so we're building the model. Like, what what do you want me to tell you? <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mike, should we let him go, let Bob go yeah. to his Friday evening? No, or? I, I, yes, I think we've covered, we, yeah, it's, we've covered a lot of stuff. We did the macro, we did the, uh, um, the, the history of Bob and, um, and probably Bob, why don't you let everybody know uh, where Bob E unlimited can be found and where people can find your products, your websites, your t- Twitters and et cetera, et cetera. So that exactly, uh, you know exactly. Well, you can go get you, can you find me. You can find me at Bobby unlimited on Twitter and I'm happy to, you know, I, I'm very often on Twitter and so very active. So check me out there or you can check out what we're doing with HFND at, uh, unlimitedfunds.com is probably the best place to check it out. So, uh, so Perfect. thank you so much for uh, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. It's been an amazing first conversation of the year for me. I hope they all live up to this standard. Really appreciate your um, like you spent a lot of time with us. So really appreciate your generosity as well. Oh so, no, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Love it. All right. Well, we'll find you online and have you on sometime later in the year. All the best of luck. Great. Talk to you guys later. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again. And see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? 
Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit rationalmf.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.